The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Henry Varley, a British revivalist, made this quote in 1873, although it didn't become a famous quote until Moody quoted him during a sermon in the United States. He said the world had not yet seen what God could do with a man fully consecrated to him. Perhaps that's because he made that quote in 1873, and the world had not yet seen what would happen when William Wilberforce dedicated his life to doing what God wanted him to do. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. For those of you who are wondering about the book I'm working on, well, I'm in the second phase of the editing process and I'll keep you updated for next week. Last week, we started our series on William Wilberforce. If you didn't listen to that episode, I would suggest going back to listen to it before listening to this episode. In William's younger years, he had lived with his aunt and uncle, who were friends with George Whitfield, John Newton, and the Wesley brothers. We've had episodes on all three of those. I would suggest going back and listening to those as well. William had been impacted by these great men of God. When his mother and grandfather learned about his relationship with these men, they quickly brought him home, and then they didn't allow him to have access to a Bible or church. Now, as a young man, he had abandoned everything he had learned from his early years. His uncle had passed away, leaving his great fortune to William. His grandfather had also passed away, and his father had died when he was a child. So the large sugar industry had been left to William, and he was one of the wealthiest people in England. He loved to party. He especially loved to gamble. The gambling parties he attended were the parties where prince would attend. Royalty, noblemen, they all attended the parties, and extreme amounts of money were won and lost in the gambling parties. William's closest friend was William Pitt, whose father was a prime minister of England. Pitt was the serious one. He had been groomed for power. The two Williams were inseparable. They loved politics, and they both entered and won. On September 11, 1780, William was elected Member of Parliament for Hull. He won by literally buying his votes. William found a parliamentary debate riveting. He came alive on the floor. His sarcasm, humor, and mockery would destroy his opponents, and he loved it. On April 7, 1784, he was elected again, this time Member of Parliament for Yorkshire. His friend, William Pitt, became the youngest prime minister in history. Even today, no one has become a prime minister as young as William Pitt. Both of the Williams were in their early 20s. October 1784, William first headed out on a trip around Europe to help his mother who was ill. He wanted someone to travel with and he found the perfect companion. Isaac Milner was the younger brother of a teacher he had had when he was a child. His teacher, Mr. Milner, had been a secret Methodist. Wilberforce had not known this. 
Neither had any of the parents of the pupils. They would have been outraged if they would have known. Anyone who took Christianity seriously during this time was mocked and ridiculed. Mr. Milner had seen William as an exceptional child, and had worked with him and helped him to surpass his fellow students. Milner's younger brother was a very smart young man. He was just a few years older than William and was known for his humor and his brilliance. William knew a trip with him would make a wonderful time. During the trip, William spotted a book in Milner's possessions, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge. William was shocked to find such a book in the possession of an educated person like Milner. After a short conversation, Milner confessed he was a Methodist. William immediately began to mock him. He had been swept up in this movement as a child, but now as an educated, wealthy elitist, he would have nothing to do but mock such backward, ignorant way of seeing the world. Why, this was 1784. No one took Christianity seriously. Milner was quiet as William mocked him and laughed at him. When he was done, Milner said, If we get into a battle of wit and sarcasm, you will win, William. You are a far better debater than I. But if you wish to have an adult conversation, a real conversation, a serious conversation, then I am willing. If there is a part of you that wants to know the truth, then let's talk. There was a part of William that wanted to know the truth, a seed that had been planted many years earlier, and the two men began to talk. The trip involved grand parties with royalty and noblemen, fancy dinners, lots of gambling, William's favorite pastime, but there was also quiet time, and it was during those little quiet times that William and Melner talked about Christianity. And by the time William returned to England, he was a different person. Easter of 1786, William surrendered his life, confessing his sins and accepting Christ as his only way of salvation. For months, William tried to live two lives. He tried to continue his public life as it was and keep his relationship with Jesus just between him and God. But there was a problem. God had changed him, and that change could not be kept a secret. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And this new creature was so different that it was impossible to hide. He had his maids and kitchen staff prepare meals for anyone who came begging for food, to the point where he had to hire more kitchen help to keep up with the demand. Once at a party, he was gambling, and a nobleman put his black slave up as part of the bet. William couldn't stomach it. He got up and walked away. 
He left gambling completely after that day. People were noticing William was different. But it was his friend Pitt who especially noticed it. Pitt had always been the serious one, and William Wilberforce had been the outrageous fun one. Now it seemed Wilberforce was just as serious as Pitt. Eventually, William Wilberforce sat down with William Pitt and confessed. He was a Christian. He couldn't drink and gamble anymore. He found no pleasure in the things he had found pleasure in before. And worse, he knew God was calling him to something, and he could only assume he had to leave politics and become a preacher. Pitt asked William to take some time to think before making the choice, and he asked William to allow him to have a dinner party at his house. He had some friends for him to meet. A few days later, William Wilberforce and William Pitt sat in Wilberforce's dining hall with a table full of guests. It was not a normal political dinner. There was women sitting with them and a black man and there was a pastor named James Ramsey. They ate, and there was a tension. Finally, one of the men spoke. He asked if he could speak openly. Wilberforce agreed. The man began to talk about the slave trade. This was a topic that had become taboo in England. It was something you simply did not talk about. You drank your tea with your sugar, and you pretended you didn't know how that sugar was made. But the man began to describe how men, women, and even children were taken, stripped and beaten, and put on ships. He described the box, the size of a coffin, that the slave was kept in. He explained how there was no place for the slave to go to the bathroom, and the box would fill up with his waist, and from the blood of the slave and they would sit and lay in the box for the entire trip. Then the man leaned down, picked up a bag, and he pulled large chains out of the bag and dropped them on the table. The table shook from the weight of the chains. The man then picked up a neck piece attached to the chains and locked it around his neck. He had to stretch his neck to make the large piece of heavy metal fit around his neck. He then picked up a piece and said, This part goes around the feet, and this part here, around the arms. They are locked in this position to keep them from throwing themselves overboard. The trip takes a minimum of three weeks. By the time they arrive, half the slaves will be dead, or have gone crazy. If there's a storm, some will be thrown overboard to lighten the load, especially since the boats usually carry far more than they've been made for. The man sat down. It was silent. Then the black man stood up. His name was Gustavus Vasa. He said, when the trip ends, that is just the beginning. We were forced fed to make us look healthy. We were then walked naked through town. Those who were too sick to walk were discarded to die in a dump like garbage. Once we are sold, 
Then they take metal, heat it in fire, and then... Gustavus opened his shirt to reveal a large scar across his entire chest. We are branded like cattle. We then work on the sugar plantation. We work day and night, even the little children. Some fall into the fire, and they're just left to burn. There's no escape. We're doomed to work until you work yourself to death. Gustavus sat down. The woman at the table looked at William. Her name was Hannah Moore. We heard you're trying to decide between doing God's work or politics. Perhaps you are being called to do both. Reverend James Ramsey spoke. I'm a doctor. I was invited onto a ship to help when a sickness broke out. I saw it with my own eyes. I didn't know. I didn't know. But now I do. And it has to be stopped. The group told William about the Quakers who were willing to help, and Pitt told him about a few politicians willing to help. The slave trade needed to end. William couldn't speak. A few days later, he used the dimensions the men had given him, and he built a box, the size the slaves were kept in, and he lay down in it. He could barely move. He imagined the waves tossing him about. He imagined throwing up in the box, going to the bathroom in the box, bleeding from the whipping while chained up. And he knew. He knew. Now that he knew, he could not be silent. William took a trip to visit a preacher he had not seen in many years. He had last seen him when he was just 12 years old. He had promised him he would never forget about God. He had broken that promise. He had turned his back on everything this preacher had taught him. He arrived at the place where John Newton was, but he was afraid to go in. It was as if he knew if he spoke to John Newton, his life would change, and he would be forced into a mission that would take him the rest of his life. He wrestled with God, circling the place where John Newton lived over and over before finally knocking on the door and going in. He spoke to John. He told John about his conversion. He told him about his past sins. He told him of the group he had met who were trying to end the slave trade. John Newton told him, Perhaps God has put you into your political position for such a time as this. John told him that even after all these years, He was still haunted by the souls of the men he had transported in his slave ship. It was an evil no one could imagine, and it had to stop. There were other problems in England at the same time. There was child labor, heavy prostitution, many with just children. The poor were seen as disposable, and the rich were vile. On October 28, 1787, William Wilberforce wrote out his new life mission statement. God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. 
Today we would use the word ethics. Six months later, William stood up in Parliament and gave a speech against the slave trade. He was mocked and laughed at. The idea of ending the slave trade was preposterous. There was no way such a thing could ever happen. His speech was given on May 12, 1789. William Wilberforce and William Pitt did not see it as a failure, even though the bill was voted down harshly. What they saw was just a few MPs who were willing to vote with them, and some who didn't vote at all. They saw who they could get on their side. This was just the first step. Then William was given a tour of a slave boat docked at a nearby harbor. He thought he was prepared for what he was going to see. He had heard all about it, he had imagined it, he had seen the chains, he had even built a replica for himself. But none of it had prepared him for walking onto the boat and seeing it for himself. He saw the boxes piled on top of each other. Each one meant to hold a human being. He could barely breathe from the horrid smell. And then he saw chains hanging from the ceiling. What are these for? The men giving him the tour said, Women are hung from these, so the sailor can abuse them. Often they arrive their destination pregnant. A fire was lit that day. William would not rest until the slave trade was ended. It was the year 1787. To get a picture of what the world was like during this time and the political firestorms taking place, just 10 years earlier, in 1777, the state of Vermont had declared itself an independent republic and had become the first sovereign state to abolish slavery. But during this time, the slave trade had only increased. In the 1780s, it was the peak of the slave trade. It had only been four years since the end of the war with the American colonies. In 1783, the American Revolution had ended. William Wilberforce had been on the side of Parliament that wanted the war to end. He believed that the American colonies would be a sovereign nation, and war was only prolonging the inevitable, and was leading to the deaths of young men for absolutely no reason. Some labeled him a traitor for siding with the Americans in the war. That same year, the group that had met at his dining room table officially started the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. Two men who were at his dining table that day founded it. They were Granville Sharp and Thomas Clarkson. William was a great speaker, and everywhere he went, he drew a crowd. He spoke in detail about the slave trade, and he brought with him Gustavus, who had written his story about being a slave in a book and he would sell it and sign copies at William's speeches. People began to refuse to take sugar in their teas, and everywhere they went, people signed his petitions. Crowds grew, and the movement was taking off. Then an artist named Josiah Wedgworth made a pin with a slave on it, and it said, Am I not your brother? People who opposed the slave trade would wear this pin everywhere they went. Then, in 1792, Denmark passed a law 
banning the importation of slaves to its West Indies colonies. However, the law gave the slave ships 11 years to ship as many slaves as they could to the West Indies before the law became official. Still, it seemed that the movement was growing. People's ideas were changing, and there was real hope that if they brought a bill to Parliament, it might even pass. But then, on February the 1st, 1793, France declared war on Britain. This was the start of a war that would last 22 years. People became concerned about the nation's security, and suddenly the abolitionist movement seemed unimportant. Still, William pushed on. The pro-slave trade argument was simply this. If the British slave trade stopped, the French would just take over, and then the French would be wealthy, and then the French would have the upper hand in the war. In fact, if you sided with the abolitionist movement, you were siding with the French, and that was treason. Now, no one wanted to be on the side of treason. Still, March of 1796, William finally had enough support to bring his bill to Parliament for a vote, and he knew he could win. March 15, 1796, the bill was brought to Parliament to be voted on. But a small group of MPs that had promised to vote with William didn't show up. They just didn't vote at all. They weren't even there. And the bill failed. William was horrified. He had been sure that he would finally win. Then, to make it so much worse, he found out the group of MPs had been given free tickets to the opera. They were partying it up in a booth reserved for royalty. They had abandoned the slaves for free opera tickets. William fell into despair. It was hopeless. No one cared. No one could see what was happening. He was alone. He fell into his bed. He became so depressed that he became ill. The doctors even said he was probably going to die. A friend invited him to his country home for some rest and recovery. But to William, the world seemed like a hopeless place to live. And he didn't even know if he could continue. Next week, we'll finish our story of William Wilberforce. One of the things William was famous for saying was this. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you didn't know. On that note, I want to tell you a little bit about today. I would like to read to you stats about slavery today. Today, in the year 2021, 167 countries still have slavery. India has 18.4 million slaves. China has 3.4 million slaves. Pakistan has 2.1 million slaves. Bangladesh has 1.5 million slaves. Uzbekistan has 1.2 million slaves. And North Korea has 1.1 million slaves. India has the highest number of slaves in the world with 18.4 million slaves. This number is higher than the entire 
population of the Netherlands. 1.4% of India's entire population is slaves. All forms of modern slavery exist in India, including forced child labor, forced marriages, commercial sexual exploitation, bonded labor, and forced recruitment into non-state armed groups. China has the second highest number of slaves, with 3.4 million. Some other countries with significantly high slave populations, Russia, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Indonesia, Egypt, Myanmar, Iran, Turkey, and Sudan. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you didn't know. Next week, we finish our story of William Wilberforce. To make sure that you don't miss the episode, you should subscribe. You can also check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com. I'll see you next week.